0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Josh Leposki, co-author, along with Max Liborone of Discard Studies, Wasting Systems and Power, published this year by MIT Press. Dr. Leposki, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. It's excellent to be here.
1: All right. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. I'm a professor of geography at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I've been researching and writing in the area of discard studies uh, for a number of years. My personal research has been focused on electronic discards, um, but... uh, I would say a lot of the conceptualization um, of that topic has come out of the broader field of discard studies, which I was introduced to via my co-author, Max LeBron, and have learned a great deal from, certainly, and eventually uh, we decided it was time to take what had been a a co-edited blog site to uh, a full uh, book, and here we are.
1: All right. And since Dr. Liborone wasn't able to join us today, uh, could you talk just a little bit about kind of what each of you contributed to the project and how you work together to produce the final book?
0: Yes. it's And it's unfortunate that Max can't be here. This really is a product of co-thinking and writing. And um, we, both Max and I, while we, you know, work in the area of discard studies, we do work on different topics. Max has uh, been focused on um, uh, ocean plastics uh, and and plastics more broadly, as well as indigenous methodologies and their research. Um, uh, really uh, goes in in quite different directions than uh, my own on electronics uh, but we we definitely share concepts and ideas around discard studies um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question sufficiently, but um, I guess I would just add that, uh, again, while this was definitely a project of co-thinking and writing, um, Max and I don't necessarily uh, always uh, uh, think exactly the same about discard studies. So what goes today is, is really very much my perspective on the field, and Max might have other things to say if they could be here.
1: All right. Uh, so to get into the content of the book uh, now, you describe it in the introduction as, in part, an attempt to unsettle the popular mythologies of waste. So can you tell us what are these mythologies of, of waste and, and why do they need to be unsettled?
0: Yeah, well, one of the most um, sort of immediate ones uh, is, the, is unsettling this idea that Uh, this sort of nebulous we know who, uh, sorry, know what waste is. And the reason Max and I felt this needs to be unsettled is that, uh, you know, we have as individuals, perhaps as families, a very, um, you know, deep and um, visceral familiarity with uh, things we think of as waste. We're putting stuff in the trash can, maybe a recycling bin. Um, often these are, you know, very mundane uh, tasks that maybe we don't think too much about because they seem so everyday. They're um, not necessarily pleasant. Um, you know, there can be uh, a lot of uh, sensorial um, things that go along with them. Things smell badly, etc. So. Waste, if we think about it at, at all, um, we tend to sort of pass off as um, uh, not very meaningful. And again, because we're touching it and all of these sorts of things all the time, we think we know it. However, That kind of waste, say in our in our households, uh, or putting in trash cans, or what have you, is uh, a very small percentage of overall waste arising. Really, that what's going into our bins is what typically gets referred to as municipal solid waste. And even though, if you've seen pictures uh, or been to a landfill yourself, you know the amount of waste going into that that landfill may seem massive, and in some senses it is, uh, but by far the most waste has uh, come into being long before you and I as individuals have purchased, you know, this or that commodity, whether it's food or in my case, an electronic device. Uh, Most of the waste has occurred upstream in um, manufacturing and before that in mining. So the first move that we had to make in this book was to try and, as we say, unsettle or defamiliarize people with what they think uh, waste is.
1: All right. Yeah, and so then you you take that into a discussion of scale because you know, we see waste at one scale and that might lead us to think, you know, well, a certain sort of solution might, might fit that. And it doesn't necessarily address what's going on at these other sorts of, of scales.
0: Yes. Yes. So scale is a really key concept in discard studies. And we talk about it, um, at uh at length in the book and uh i think especially so myself as a geographer for sure this was one of the concepts uh in learning from uh discard studies that was um in a way the hardest for me to overcome um where i was at with my understanding of scale as a geographer since that you know um, those listening to the podcast um, who are geographers may know about the, the scale debates that go on in the field. And even for all of those debates that go on within geography itself, there's still a tendency in, in those debates and, and as sort of outside uh, geography as a field, to think of scale and size as kind of interchangeable concepts. And in DISCARD studies, um, we, we try to think about scale differently, where relative size uh, may or may not be sort of the main issue in play. Um, so we talk about scale not in terms of relative size but as the relationships that matter and we have a couple of analogies uh that we explore in the book um you know we you might have for example uh uh, an an elephant uh a virus and uh water and um for the virus um Capillary action moving through, um, say the the veins of a of an elephant, is uh, those are the relationships that matter uh, much more than the size of the elephant in terms of uh, moving through the, the elephant's body, for example. So uh, we just try to think about um, scale a little bit differently. And the reason that this is important is when it comes to discard is that. Very, very often, one of the solutions put forward to solve waste problems defaults to uh, recycling, and in particular, consumer, post consumer recycling. And when you look at the relative, and here's where we have to make a distinction between scale and magnitude when you look at the relative magnitude of waste arising in post consumer compared to upstream in manufacturing and, and mining before that, recycling. Uh, Post-consumer waste can never match up to the magnitude of uh, total waste arising uh, from mining and manufacturing. So, we in in the book we talk about a scalar mismatch. It's not that recycling. Certainly, the argument we're making is not that recycling is bad or wrong or something or shouldn't be done, but that the the relationship that it has with the uh, magnitude of the waste overall waste problem doesn't match up so scale needs to be um, thought of in terms of the relationships that matter
1: yeah and you make an interesting point that one of the relationships that recycling has is that it can facilitate the sort of approach to disposability of of products that it's you know in theory supposed to be trying to solve
0: Yeah, that's right. So um, there's a lot uh, packed into what you're saying there. You know, when you look at recycling, what has come to be, um, you know, post-consumer recycling or curbside recycling in, um, you know, the United States, uh, lots of Europe or or Canada, there was historically there was a lot of resistance uh, early on from industry. uh, and they you know their excellent historical analyses of this. Um, but relatively quickly, uh, various industries realized that what post-consumer recycling offered was a way to move products through households as, apo- as opposed to into households, um, which of course, is excellent for the bottom line of, uh, of corporations, right, who are making um, uh, products that are uh, increasingly disposable. Um, if you turn uh, the, problem, the marketing problem not into something like how do we get someone to bring it into their home, but turn it into something about how do we move it through households, then recycling can actually shore up uh, disposability as opposed to being a, a solution to it. I mean, it's not an accident um, that, you know, the waste hierarchy that so many of us learn from from when we we're very young, even in, in elementary school, of reduce, reuse, recycle, that so frequently the emphasis is on recycle and there's, you know, re- reduction gets its mention, but it rarely gets its practice, if you will.
1: Right, and even the the reduction part can only do so much if we're treating that as a kind of instruction to the consumer, um, you know. And they're, yeah, that, the, sorry, the
0: go ahead. No, yeah, go- that's right. I I mean, th- this is another thing that we get into in various places in the book is the is the way that. Um, uh, solutions that are offered for, uh, waste issues are very often, uh, framed in term, in terms of individualist action and that the responsibility is on you as the individual consumer to, um, uh, you know, reduce and recycle what, uh, you are being blamed for in terms of, uh, you know, consuming this or that commodity. And certainly, you know, we're not making an argument that personal uh, responsibility is not important at all. But what we are pointing out is that at the individual level, it doesn't matter if we all achieve 100% recycling because most of the waste has uh, happened before um, we've purchased this or that commodity. And also, it's important, as we as we discuss in the book, to think through the um, differences in power that are, um, how to put it, I guess, bundled up with with uh, solutions that are framed as uh, individual responsibility only. You know, when um, large corporations and individual consumers are placed side by side, as if they are, you know two different individuals, as it were, that is, again, not an accident. And it, it erases the differences in power that those two actors have. And so one of the arguments that we make in the book is that it, it is crucial to analyze uh, differences in, in power in that respect.
1: Yeah. So you're kind of anticipating actually the next question that I wanted to ask, which is about the role of power. And you describe discarding as a technique of power, as a you know, power deciding what gets discarded and how it gets uh, discarded. So can you say a little bit more about the the importance of power to discarding and how that relates to different uh, sort of social arrangements?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I think that the issue of power is perhaps one point where, and and we can come back to this if you like, but where for me, there is a difference between what we're calling discard studies in the book and what elsewhere might be called waste studies. And um, while I'm not super interested in in sort of policing boundaries between fields, there is a difference to me between discard studies and waste studies in that um discard studies um has come to mean for for Max and I uh, a way of understanding how systems work as opposed to um waste in a more let's say conventional or everyday language sense of of the term whether that's say curbside pickup of garbage or trash or or recycling that that sort of thing and um, so you're you're Initial question there was about power. I think maybe it's helpful to tell a, a little bit of a uh, origin story, I guess, for for how um, the shift in my conceptual uh, thinking kind of came about here, and that was. Um, probably around uh, 20, between 2016 and, and 2018, when I was uh, reading um, from my own work around work on um, critical algorithm studies um, and also in um, uh, work on commercial content moderation of social media. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, um, from from a variety of authors who, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think initially of as discard studies authors. But when I, as I learn more and more about how um, content moderation actually works, where um, despite all of the kind of hype around the use of Computer algorithms to do the content moderation—that is, the the cleaning up of social media feeds to get rid of content that would otherwise violate um, uh, companies' uh, uh, community use policies, for example, uh, hateful content, sexual explicit, etc. It became uh, relatively clear to me that this is. A type of discarding we're not talking when it comes to commercial content moderation we're not talking about waste or trash in the conventional sense but there is a you know there there are explicit references to cleaning up to getting rid of and for me that was a moment where i was i I kind of made this leap to ah okay discard studies is actually something different than in this sense than thinking about waste in the more conventional sense and it became a way discard studies became a way for me to think about okay this is a way of thinking about how systems work any system in order to be the system that it is it has to get rid of people places and things and it was in conversation then with uh with max over um you know those years between say as I say, 2016-ish and, and beyond, where I think together we really started thinking more broadly ab- about discard studies um, than uh, conventional forms uh, of, of waste or trash. To go back to the question of power, just in that, you know, in that example of commercial content moderation, there are very clear examples of deeply uneven power relationships that um, you know from let's say a labor studies point of view um, might be more um, uh, apparent so commercial content moderators for twitter and and for facebook there's been you know fantastic investigative investigative reporting into this Um, there's been you know excellent academic uh studies of this but typically the people who are employed doing the uh, content moderation they are hired by third third party contract um uh, employment agencies so the an individual content moderator may be doing work for say facebook but is not employed by Facebook, and what that means, of course, is that their pay is very much below what a uh, uh, someone employed inside Facebook would actually be making. They have very different uh, employment conditions. Um, you know, the relative lack uh, of benefits, maybe absence of benefits, things like health care and and whatnot. <clears throat> Excuse me and uh so there's uh, this is a you know a clear example of of uneven power relationships and so it is um that's just one case that we explore in the book to try and demonstrate how thinking discard studies is about thinking about how systems work and and recognizing that any system as, as i say has to get rid of um people, places, and things in order to maintain its systemic ordering.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the social media moderation example because that was kind of the moment in the book where, you know, I'm reading along, and you're like talking about recycling and talking about plastic bag bands and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I expected this book to be about. And then you you hit us with, so now we're going to apply this theory to social media content moderation. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, this book is doing something really interesting and different. Uh, okay. here.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can say a little bit more about that in that um, we were, I I think that this direction of getting at systems beyond uh, those that relate to trash or garbage in the conventional senses um, was, it was a direction that discard studies was headed, but hadn't yet really been, you know, kind of written down and, and tried to Linked together in a uh, coherent way, a set of concepts that would kind of draw that out. Um, and, but but for me, it was it was this really crucial conceptual shift, and why I I for my for my own research, I'm um, I feel much happier thinking of myself as someone who engages with discard studies. Uh, As opposed to waste studies, although I have (laughs) published in that other in in waste studies as a field, and um, as we say in in the book, the these two fields can they can overlap, but we we argue that waste studies isn't necessarily and automatically discard studies.
1: Right. You're not trying to discard waste studies. That's correct. (laughs) That's
0: correct. Um, Some of of my best friends are waste studies. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh,
1: So then another case study that kind of runs through the book, that's another one that maybe people wouldn't expect uh, to see. in in a book like this is the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you say something about how how does discard studies help us understand the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Yeah. So uh, Max and I started writing this book before the pandemic. But um, even as it was taking off, um, it was becoming very clear that the ideas that we were trying to articulate that. Discard studies as a way of understanding systems, uh, in terms of that that any system, in order to be what it is, has to get rid of people, places, and things. As the pandemic was taking it taking off, we were, uh, you know, I suppose surprised. I, I'm trying to avoid the word delighted <laughs> because it seems like such a te- you know it's a such a terrible experience that um has been going on with the pandemic you know and and as we try to get into a little bit in the book in uh you know very brutally differentiated ways um but as as COVID 19 was taking up we were sorry taking off we were seeing so many of different interlocking systems starting to be increasingly laid bare by in part for example by you know who was being made sacrificable, right to the pandemic? You know, we had the designation of uh, people in in different uh, jurisdictions. You know, legally deemed um, essential workers, and there—I mean, there's a lot packed into that. But just even at a at a fairly superficial level, you could look. At different jurisdictions, and just start listing the uh, occupations that were deemed essential. And one of the things you notice is that not all jurisdictions had the same list. So this broader idea that um, you know discard studies has to be very careful about uh, avoiding universalisms. Um, things are highly. Uh, differentiated, you know, geographically, temporally, etc., is really important. Also, when you looked at these jurisdictions and you look different jurisdictions and you looked at the types of jobs deemed essential, you know, now two and a half years into the pandemic, it may be, you know, it's undeniably obvious. I think to probably many, if not most people, but early on, it was uh you know only clear in some places that were collecting for example racially racialized data that uh the occupations deemed essential also uh were heavily racialized um uh, as non-white and that's not an accident um so we were what what covid uh was and is showing us is how a whole variety of systems uh, industrial systems or economic systems, capitalism if you want to uh, use that that term uh, white supremacy and racialization uh, and so on you know interlock and have uh, highly differential consequences for, Um, to move very quickly, who's included and who's excluded, right? Who is brought in and who is discarded and how.
1: Yeah. So um, for for folks that maybe haven't encountered discard studies or, or waste studies or anything in this kind of area before, I think one thing that they may be familiar with is the the observation by uh, Mary Douglas that dirt is matter out of place. And so you spend some time in the book kind of engaging with Douglas's perspective as sort of one of the the sort of foundations, but also something that needs to be critiqued in different ways um, by the, the field. So can you say a little bit about, you know, what, what you find useful and not useful about uh, Mary Douglas's work?
0: For sure. Uh, so yes, that uh, that quote from Mary Douglas is um, a key concept in the field. Um, uh, dirt is matter out of place, and it's uh, it's really Max who's done some uh, some really great uh, public writing and thinking initially on the Discard Studies blog about the meaning of that um, uh, aphorism or concept and uh, the. Uh, need for um, folks who are engaged in discard studies to to really be mindful of its of its implications. Um, so, for those not already familiar with with the concept uh, or the saying uh, "dirt is matter out of place," Mary Douglas was a, an anthropologist, and she was comparing. Um, uh, various uh, religious and cultural systems, and um, making this point that we depend on very heavily in the book that um, uh, those religious or cultural systems have certain categories of things that um, that she she describes as dirt, and these are things that f- offer sort of fundamentally um, fundamental challenges to the overall order that this or that religious or cultural system in, in question makes of the world. And so there are examples uh, that she takes from from various cultures around the world. And... Um, we certainly agree uh, with with her point not just agree I mean it's incredibly uh, conceptually useful for for thinking about how power and systems work um, but part of what we talk about in the book is the uh, is the way that too often Douglas's phrase dirt is matter out of place is applied to trash or garbage in the conventional sense that you know the let's say the you know the plastic water bottle in the gutter is an instance of dirt uh that is matter out of place and in 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 fact as mary douglas herself in her, in her own writing says trash or garbage in that sense is not dirt because uh, it doesn't represent a fundamental challenge to the over uh, to the to the overall ordering system of which it's part. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a water bottle in the gutter is um, might be misplaced or displaced in that it hasn't made it into the bin, whether that's a garbage bin or a recycling bin. But that such. A place exists means that that water bottle in the gutter doesn't represent a challenge, right? There is a place to put it. So dirt, as Mary Douglas describes it, is um, something that truly does not fit and threatens in a kind of existential way uh, whatever system um it uh the the person place or or thing is a is an instance of um so i hope i hope that makes some sense
1: yeah yeah uh definitely so then, the final chapter of the book you raise the issue of how to discard well because you're saying you're not saying that like we should never discard anything that's not a you know, a a possible or feasible situation. So we should think about how to discard well. So can you give us some sort of pointers in the direction of, of thinking about how to discard well?
0: For sure. Yeah. No, thanks for asking this. Um, So one of the things we had to contend with was that if indeed our, our prop, our proposal that all systems discard then that means if our thinking is systematic then we too have to discard (laughs) there's no getting around it and this is a, a broader point that we make throughout the book that systems just because they uh discard that you know that doesn't mean only as it were in quotes you know bad systems discard, and, the, and we'll reach this magical time and place when we'll find systems that don't discard. Um, uh, we're, we're making the uh, the claim that for systems to be what they are, they have to get rid of people, places, and things one way or another. So yes, we, we spend the last uh, chapter trying to lay out a way of um, discarding well, and we make a couple of points. One is, is that there's not going to be a universal recipe. We can't offer um, a, a way that's going to work always and everywhere um, in a guaranteed kind of way, but we can offer some, let's call them orientations as opposed to a list of things to do. So um, when we're uh, when thinking about how if, if a reader is interested in how they might discard well, or the systems that they are part of might discard well, the first thing to think about is moving from um, describing how the system is now to how uh, one thinks it ought to be, what would a, a better um, organization of the uh, system in question b and there are, there's a way to do that by asking yourself some uh questions about you know um what uh goods are goods in the sense of let's say moral goods are being sought and what bads uh if you will are are being fought that's a question that that comes out of some work in uh, science and technology studies, and authors in that in that uh, field. Um, after thinking about uh, what, uh, or thinking about how things ought to be organized, it's also important to think through specificity. So think about the the specifics of a given uh, case that a a system is or is part of um we go into an example in the book um where we start talking about snow clearing for example in a in a city in sweden um and we talk about uh how which may Sound like uh, a leap. I can get into it more if, if we want, but uh, we go from uh, an example where a snow clearing very, uh, very much favored a sort of male-dominated places of work and was rearranged to favor pedestrians, uh, who, statistically speaking, were more likely to be uh, women doing care work, and um, that change in that system managed to achieve some goods but one of the things that it it didn't manage to change was um, the uh, uh, creation of tire dust uh, on roadways which are major pollutants and we so we talk about how um, uh, in looking to discard well you need to be specific you won't be able to to do everything everywhere all at once as it were and so you have to be very cognizant of the um, connecting the action that you are considering taking with um, the ends that you want to achieve, so that's back to that concept of scale uh, and the, the specific relationships that matter. Um, third uh when thinking about discarding well you want to be thinking about dealing with uh, be sure you're dealing with systems rather than symptoms um so um you know uh litter in the gutter is a a, a symptom of a broader industrial organization devoted to depot Disposability, for example. So, you might, if you truly want to deal with disposability, that's a much different thing than, um, uh, say, putting some recycling bins at the curbside. It, that doesn't mean don't put recycling bins at the curbside, but putting recycling bins at the curbside isn't going to match up to the system of disposability. Um, we also talk about discarding. Well, that uh, it's important to be accountable to what is discarded. This can be a little bit tricky to convey, but um, we we went through a, a case study in in the last chapter where we had developed. Uh, a case study that dealt with um, a specific example of indigenous sovereignty. That the the sort of entry point to it was um, waste and trash in a conventional sense occurring at campsites, and how uh, an indigenous nation um, uh, developed a set of protocols. That would have led to, or not would have, have led to permits being um, uh, necessary for people to come on to this nation's lands uh, to um, engage in a a variety of of different um, practices, camping, but also harvesting of uh, wild uh, uh, wild plants, and. Uh, That is about as much as I can say about that case, because one of the things that, uh, as we say, we're concerned about in Discarding Well is being accountable. And um, we um, felt it was important that we would have permission of uh, the nation uh, to tell these stories uh, before using them for our own purposes in our book, because to simply... um, uh, assume that we could uh, take these stories uh, and and tell our own um, uh, story about them for our own purposes is a very colonial move, right? That is to discard uh, practices of indigenous sovereignty not cool, not something we wanted to do. So that was a way of being accountable was to first try to seek permission. We almost got it over a series of communications over many months, but we didn't quite. And so what we did was discard the case study and talk about the specific uh, policy relating to research involving Indigenous uh, groups that is... Um, in operation at the university that we work with yeah. as a, as a as a way of describing how we attempted to be accountable and discard well so um, hopefully that's a little bit more concrete
1: yeah 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 um... And so with that case study, we reached kind of the the end of the last chapter of the book, but it's not the last thing in the book that I wanted to ask you about uh, because I took a look at your uh your citations your list of references and you begin that with a little discussion of citational practice and you give like some statistics about the gender balance of the scholars that you cited uh, so i wanted to ask you to talk a bit about uh you know you're clearly very conscious about how you are making use of existing research and who you were citing uh and so i I wondered if you could talk a bit about uh, how that process worked for you and kind of the impact that had on the book
0: yeah this is really crucial and i and i really have learned a great deal from max on this and this is very much um uh, their work in 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 the book and uh teachings for me to learn for sure um so max not just in this book but in in other um uh, work that they publish um they have paid uh, a great deal of attention to what sometimes gets called citational politics which in a in a sort of simplistic way, is about you know who gets cited by whom and and about what. And over and over and over again, um, when uh, these when citational practices are studied, there is a systematic tendency for um, women, for uh, black, for people of color, people who are indigenous. Uh, to not be cited, um, even though they, you know, work in this or that field that's in question, and um, uh, you know, despite our own uh, meaning, Max, and and my own growing uh, awareness um, of those issues, and our and our own like very explicit attempt to. Um, do better in terms of uh, who we cite and, and how, um, we uh, ran the bibliography once we were finished uh, through um, uh, an online tool, uh, which is, um, you know, it it, 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 it can it, it has its uh, limits to be sure, but uh, we ran it through an online tour, a tool that um, attempts to measure the just the gender balance of uh, the citations made. And despite our best efforts, uh, we had something uh, like 30 30 uh, percent plus uh, of women authored work in our bibliography. and. Interestingly, um, without show you know, sort of throwing shade on on the press when it came time to copy editing uh, the manuscript, the initial copy edits had um, taken out uh, a bunch of references we had in our bibliography to Twitter threads uh, on these topics of citational politics, often by, uh women of of color and so even as we had tried to include them the publishing process i.e a system had been at work in terms of discarding and so we had to go back and say no 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 these these tweets need to stay in as cited work and um you know this It was not hard to ask to get it done, but the the very fact that we had to is itself a signal, right, about how systems of citational politics work, if that makes sense.
1: And so this book uh, is available for purchase for anyone that wants to read it, but it's also available open access, so you can pull up each chapter.
0: It is. Uh, we're very excited for that, and we're very thankful. Max and I are very thankful to the press who arranged open access. Uh, we we uh, did try to um, work that into our contract negotiations right from go, uh, and um, but it was only uh, after. Um, the manuscript was uh, sent for printing actually that we learned indeed um, they had uh, the press had found funding to make it open access so the entire book is available chapter by chapter from MIT press uh, for uh, open access use and um, we were really uh, um, trying to get this done in part because uh, we wanted to make the book useful for teaching and we we hope that people will find it useful in those ways.
1: Yeah, as a, as a teacher, it's great if I can, you know, just have my students read one chapter out of this, if it's relevant to a, a particular lesson. Uh, it's, it's much easier when it's available open access like that. Exactly. Okay, so as we're moving toward the end of our time here, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book.
0: Well, certainly uh, a shout out to uh, Max. Uh, It would be impossible uh, to have written this book. I, I couldn't couldn't have written this book by myself. This is very much uh, uh, writing and thinking together. Um, so my thanks to Max for uh, for that ongoing collaboration. And um, uh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't uh, who else to thank. My family, um, but they have their own projects uh, that that uh, they're engaged with. Um, so I'm just thankful that they uh, they are there, and I am with them.
1: And we always like to end by asking what you're working on next.
0: Uh, sure. I, I have ongoing research around, uh, back to the topic of uh, electronics. Um, I'm very much um, into Uh, analyzing electronics as an industrial sector from an environmentally grounded point of view and particularly drawing attention, documenting pollution and waste arising upstream in the manufacturing and mining necessary for electronics, as well as thinking about repair both repair of devices but increasingly repair of for want of a better term the landscapes that these uh, broader industrial systems rely on uh, for their existence
1: all right well thank you so much for coming on the show
0: all right well thank you very much stenter that was great
1: You just heard a conversation with Josh Leposky, co-author, along with Max Liborone of Discard Studies, Wasting Systems and Power, published this year by MIT Press.